Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Law School of America Accord and Satisfaction is a contract law concept about the purchase of the release from a debt obligation. It is one of the methods by which parties to a contract may terminate their agreement. The release is completed by the transfer of valuable consideration that must not be the actual performance of the obligation itself. The accord is the agreement to discharge the obligation and the satisfaction is the legal consideration which binds the parties to the agreement. A valid accord does not discharge the prior contract, instead it suspends the right to enforce it in accordance with the terms of the accord contract, in which satisfaction, or performance of the contract will discharge both contracts, the original and the accord. If the creditor breaches the accord, then the debtor will be able to bring up the existence of the accord in order to enjoin any action against him. If a person is sued over an alleged debt, that person bears the burden of proving the affirmative defense of accord and satisfaction. Illustration Accord and satisfaction is a settlement of an unliquidated debt. For example, a builder is contracted to build a homeowner a garage for $35,000. The contract called for $17,500 prior to starting construction, to disperse $10,000 during various stages of construction, and to make a final payment of $7,500 at completion. At completion, the homeowner complained about inferior work quality and refused to make the final payment. After a mutual settlement agreement, the builder accepted $4,000 as full payment. Thereby, a new contract was formed by offer, acceptance, and consideration. The consideration is that for a $3,500 savings, the homeowner gives up that which he is entitled, a well-constructed garage. The builder gives up his right to full price to avoid suit for inferior performance. When accord and satisfaction has occurred, the homeowner has given up his right to sue for inferior performance, and the builder has given up his right to sue for the full $7,500 due under the original contract. Another example would be where a lender agrees to lend $100,000 at 5.0% interest for 30 years, and at the closing the loan documents are all drawn up for a loan with a 6.0% interest rate. If the lender agrees to reduce the closing costs by an extra $1,000 and the borrowers agree, then there has been an accord and satisfaction. If the borrowers later sue for breach of contract, the settlement, offer and acceptance of the $1,000, constitutes an accord and satisfaction and is a valid defense to the borrower's lawsuit. The accord agreement must be transacted on a new agreement. It must therefore have the essential terms of a contract, parties, subject matter time for performance, and consideration. If there is a breach of the accord there will be no satisfaction which will give rise to a breach of accord. In this instance the non-offending party has the right to sue under either the original contract or the accord agreement. Consideration In an accord contract it is typical that the consideration supplied is less than bargained for in the original contract. In accord contracts that require an amount of consideration that is less than the original, the consideration must be of a different type, for example, Instead of money, the debtor offers a car or a boat. Clean hands, sometimes called the clean hands doctrine, 
unclean hands doctrine, or dirty hands doctrine, is an equitable defense in which the defendant argues that the plaintiff is not entitled to obtain an equitable remedy because the plaintiff is acting unethically or has acted in bad faith with respect to the subject of the complaint, that is, with unclean hands. The defendant has the burden of proof to show the plaintiff is not acting in good faith. The doctrine is often stated as those seeking equity must do equity or equity must come with clean hands. This is a matter of protocol, characterized by A.P. Herbert in Uncommon Law by his fictional Judge Milda saying, as Herbert says, less elegantly, a dirty dog will not have justice by the court. The clean hands doctrine is used in U.S. patent law to deny equitable or illegal relief to a patentee that has engaged in improper conduct, such as using the patent to extend monopoly power beyond the claims of the patent. A defendant's unclean hands can also be claimed and proven by the plaintiff to claim other equitable remedies and to prevent that defendant from asserting equitable affirmative defenses. In other words, unclean hands can be used defensively by the plaintiff as well as defensively by the defendant. Historically, the doctrine of unclean hands can be traced as far back as the Fourth Lateran Council. He who comes into equity must come with clean hands is an equitable maxim in English law. In contract law, Impossibility is an excuse for the non-performance of duties under a contract, based on a change in circumstances, or the discovery of pre-existing circumstances, the non-occurrence of which was an underlying assumption of the contract, that makes performance of the contract literally impossible. For example, if Ebenezer contracts to pay Erasmus £100 to paint his house on October 1st, but the house burns to the ground before the end of September, Ebenezer is excused from his duty to pay Erasmus the £100, and Erasmus is excused from his duty to paint Ebenezer's house, however, Erasmus may still be able to sue under the theory of unjust enrichment for the value of any benefit he conferred on Ebenezer before his house burned down. The parties to a contract may choose to ignore impossibility by inserting a hell or high water clause, which mandates that payments continue even if completion of the contract becomes physically impossible. In common law, for the defense of impossibility to be raised performance must not merely be difficult or unexpectedly costly for one party, there must be no way for it to actually be accomplished, however, it is beginning to be recognized that impossibility under this doctrine can also exist when the contemplated performance can be done but only at an excessive and unreasonable cost, for example, commercial impracticability. On the other hand, some sources see impossibility and impracticability as being related but separate defenses. The English case that established the doctrine of impossibility at common law is Taylor v. Caldwell. Now a word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America. The doctrine of impracticability in the common law of contracts excuses performance of a duty, where the said duty has become unfeasibly difficult or expensive for the party who was to perform. Impracticability is similar in some respects to the doctrine of impossibility because it is triggered by the occurrence of a condition which prevents one party from fulfilling the contract. The major difference between the two doctrines is that while impossibility excuses performance where the contractual duty cannot physically be performed, the doctrine of impracticability comes into play where performance is still physically possible, but would be extremely burdensome for the party whose performance is due. 
Thus, impossibility is an objective condition, whereas impracticability is a subjective condition for a court to determine. Typically, the test U.S. courts use for impracticability is as follows, with a few variations among different jurisdictions. 1. There must be an occurrence of a condition, the non-occurrence of which was a basic assumption of the contract. 2. The occurrence must make performance extremely expensive or difficult. 3. This difficulty was not anticipated by the parties to the contract. Note, some jurisdictions require that there be no measure within the contract itself to allocate risk between the parties. Restatement of Contracts Section 261 of the Restatement, Second, of Contracts does not explicitly define the scope of what is considered impracticable, as it is a fairly subjective and fact-intensive test for the courts. Generally, courts do not consider events such as an increase in price or costs beyond a normal range to allow for discharge of duties on grounds of impracticability, as such events are normally foreseeable risks of fixed-price contracts. Uniform Commercial Code Section 2-615 of the Uniform Commercial Code deals with impracticability in the context of sales of goods, and introduces some additional constraints on the parties. A party whose ability to perform his obligations has only been partially affected must allocate production and delivery among his customers in a manner which is fair and reasonable, affording each of them with partial performance, and must notify all purchasers that there will be delay, partial delivery, or non-delivery. This is similar in some respects to the doctrine of general average and admiralty law. According to Note 4 under UCC 2615, increased cost alone does not excuse performance unless the rise in cost is due to some unforeseen contingency which alters the nature of performance. It further explains that a change in market conditions resulting in a rise or drop in prices is not sufficient to claim impracticability because the parties assumed that risk when the contract was made. The comments indicate that contingencies such as war, embargo, crop failures, or a failure of a major source of supply that causes the market change or prevents a seller from obtaining supplies necessary for his performance would justify a claim of impracticability. An illegal agreement under the common law of contract is one that the court will not enforce because the purpose of the agreement is to achieve an illegal end. The illegal end must result from performance of the contract itself. The classic example of such an agreement is a contract for murder. The illegality of a contract depends on, 1, the law of the country governing the contract, and, 2, the law of the place of performance. Different rules will apply depending on the law of the relevant countries. However, a contract that requires only legal performance on the part of each party, such as the sale of packs of cards to a known gambler, where gambling is illegal, will nonetheless be enforceable. A contract directly linked to the Gambling Act itself, such as paying off gambling debts, See proximate cause, however, will not meet the legal standards of enforceability. Therefore, an employment contract between a blackjack dealer and a speakeasy manager is an example of an illegal agreement and the employee has no valid claim to his anticipated wages if gambling is illegal under that jurisdiction. In Bovard v. American Horse Enterprises, 1988, the California Court of Appeal for the Third District refused to enforce a contract for payment of promissory notes used for the purchase of a company that manufactured drug paraphernalia. Although the items sold were not actually illegal, the court refused to enforce the contract for public policy concerns. In Canada, one cited case of lack of enforceability based on illegality is Royal Bank of Canada v. Newell, in which a woman forged her husband's signature on 40 checks, totaling over $58,000. To protect her from prosecution, 
Her husband signed a letter of intent prepared by the bank in which he agreed to assume all liability and responsibility for the forged checks. However, the agreement was unenforceable, and was struck down by the courts, because of its essential goal, which was to stifle a criminal prosecution. Because of the contract's illegality, and as a result voided status, the bank was forced to return the payments made by the husband. Contracts in restraint of trade are a variety of illegal contracts and generally will not be enforced unless they are reasonable in the interests of the contracting parties and the public. Contracts in restraint of trade if proved to be reasonable can be enforced. When restraint is placed on an ex-employee, the court will consider the geographical limits, what the employee knows and the extent of the duration. Restraint imposed on a vendor of business must be reasonable and is binding if there is a genuine seal of goodwill. Under common law, contracts to fix prices are legal. Sole supplier, solus, agreements are legal if reasonable. Contracts which contravene public policy are void. The Law School of America This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. (laughs) 